Since winning power in 2019, this government has made levelling up a central priority. Or so it says. Recently, the Prime Minister has made a what he claimed was a significant speech about levelling up, though, like most commentators, I saw very little of substance in it. Investment and infrastructure spending are some of the key areas the government has promised to increase. Indeed, they focus very much on those, often to the neglect of other very important areas. But what is investment spending? Why is investment now so much lower than it was decades ago? And what has investment spending got to do with levelling up? Well, this week, we bring you an episode from our archive, recorded last year, looking at the role of infrastructure spending in levelling up. Sadly, not much. In fact, almost nothing has changed since then. And so our discussion remains just as relevant as it was a year ago. I spoke with IFS research economist Ben Zaranko and with Tim Besley, who's Professor of Economics and Political Science at the LSE. And he's also a member of the National Infrastructure Commission. Perhaps the best place to start uh, is to ask what it is we're actually talking about when we talk about investment or infrastructure spending. We hear about it so much uh, in government announcements. So, Ben, perhaps I could start by asking you that question. What, what, what do we mean when we talk about or when the government talks about increasing investment spending as opposed to any other kind of spending? The broad way to think about investment spending is spending on fixed assets, so assets that will last more than a year and from which future benefits can be derived. So thinking about investment in something like a building, in a road or a bridge that will be able to be used for years to come, that's as distinct from spending on running costs and wages for staff, for example, where it's spending this year and you have to make that spending again in the future. Now, the definition can get a little bit fuzzy when you get to things like health and education, where you can quite reasonably argue that investing in someone's Health or education has future benefits, but conventionally we think about investment in fixed assets, and that's typically how these things are accounted for in government uh, accounts. Can I bring you in on that particular issue, Tim? I mean, is there a fixed economic difference between what we think of as investment spending or capital spending and what we think of as current spending? Is it so different investing in a road as opposed to paying a teacher for the uh, it, the skills they hopefully will be instilling in young people, which will last for years? Well, there's some blurred lines. So, so a good example, actually, would be in the area of skills and training. Um, uh, often, if you think about um, how you build a system for delivering particularly skills that are relevant to employers, that will, will often uh, require establishing structures for the long term. Um, and that may involve building some buildings, employing some people to be in those buildings. Uh, and then you know, that, that's a skills program, but it, but it really is a form of, of infrastructure too. So, so there are certainly grey areas between the sort of the pure concrete investment, building a road or contributing to a railway network on, on one, one end, but, but a sort of a middle ground. Uh, and, and actually, if you look at some of the recent announcements around Invest, uh, school maintenance and school building, um, we, we might think of those as just school spending, but in fact, they're part of the investment that lies behind an effective schooling system. So there's a really a whole set of things. It's really about those things where the payoff is more long term than short term, I would say. Okay, so um, coming back to you, Ben, on the question of uh, given the uh, definition of investment spending, 
How much do we spend at the moment? What, how big a fraction of the government budget is it? And, and how has that changed over time? The definition we typically use is something called public sector net investment. So that's net of depreciation. So it's you know, effectively the amount of new investment we are doing above and beyond the amount it takes to maintain and repair the assets we've already got. Currently, that's hovering just over 2% of national income which is relatively high by immediate uh, recent standards. But if we take a longer view of history, it's actually not particularly high. If you look back to the 1960s and 70s, government investment was regularly between 6 and 7% of national income. That fell very sharply, partly as a result of movements out of the public sector into the private sector as the scope of what government does change. You can think about the privatisation of lots of capital-intensive industries like telecoms, car manufacturing, steel. Also think about the sale of council houses and so on. But there was also a, a general reduction in the amount of investment the government was doing to very low levels in the 1980s and 1990s. That's picked up a bit, now covering just over 2%. As I say, the government has an ambition to increase public sector net, net investment to 3% of national income by 2023, which would be the highest level it's been sustained at for about 40 years, but not as much as we were investing in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. That's, uh, I mean, that's a very striking thing that you're saying about the difference between what government does now and what it did in the past. So in the past, uh, British Telecom investing uh, would count as government investment, and today any telecommunications investment will count as private sector investment. So it's not just that we have this blurred line between what's investment and what isn't, but it's not obvious that uh, it's not all that public sector investment is good and private sector investment we shouldn't think about. We need to think about all of this together in terms of considering the future productive capacity of the economy. Absolutely. I think it's important to take these things in the whole. Uh, it's not necessarily better or worse if an investment is done, being done by the private sector, whether that's in the case of telecoms. Or to take the example of housing, if a council house was owned by local government and local government spent some money Upgrading that house, uh, maintaining it, that might count as public investment. If now it was sold to a private individual and they take the same amount of investment in that house, it now counts in the private sector. That's not necessarily a problem, just matters where it's counted in the economic accounts. But I think that uh, there's also a question of uh, whether the same type of investment would be done, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector. It's not just the amount, it's also where it goes, how it's done, and the focus uh, that might differ between sectors. You said that government's planning to raise uh, public sector investment from 2 to 3% of national income. That doesn't sound particularly dramatic, but that's an increase of, what, something over £20 billion pounds a year. I mean, how, how big a change is that, and how, how plausible is that as a, as a plan? I think it is quite big. Uh, it's certainly reasonably ambitious on the part of government. It's worth saying that this is nothing like as ambitious as what was contained within the Labour Party manifesto at the last election. They were, their plans implied raising investment spending to something like 4.5% of GDP over a similar time frame. So I think that it's ambitious, but it's perhaps uh, somewhere in the middle of the scale of ambition rather than on uh, either extreme end. The challenge is that we know historically governments have struggled to meet their investment plans. That's been true at times when the government was ramping up investment spending, as we like to see in the next few years. And it's also been the case when spending was on a downwards trajectory, spending came in lower than planned. So when it's on the way up, they underspend. When it's on the way down, 
they also tend to underspend. So the real challenge for the next few years is actually delivering on the scale of investment that they've promised and that they're seeking to deliver, making it operational, making it happen in practice, rather than just making grand promises and then under-delivering. Why is that? And that's, uh, I mean, it's, a re- it's remarkable what you described, that year after year after year after year, almost irrespective of whether the plans are to increase investment or reduce it, uh, the plans are never, uh, are never met. I think there's a few big reasons. The first of those is a very human problem of overambition. And people like, ambition is not a problem, but when you promise big and you make, politicians are fond of making grand promises, like to announce big new infrastructure projects, for example, on ambitious timeframes. And if that happens in a systematic way, that can mean that you tend to under deliver. Secondly, I think there's an important point here about the fact that capital budgets and investment budgets are often seen as easier to cut by the Treasury when times are hard. Now, capital budgets are separated from current budgets for exactly that reason, to try and prevent departments raiding the investment budget to top up staff wages, for example. But in recent years, the NHS has been under pressure, we know that, and the Treasury has repeatedly sanctioned their moving money from their investment budget into the day-to-day budget to meet those day-to-day pressures, which has meant that investment in new hospitals and hospital maintenance has been lower than it might otherwise have been. That's a second point. Third, I think there's a question of um, whether the civil service has adequate expertise and the correct amounts of staff or the right quality of staff to be planning, organising and delivering projects on this scale. And finally, it's one thing announcing it. Someone's got to build it, someone's got to do it, and we know that the construction sector has shortages of staff and there might not be the adequate number of suitably skilled people to deliver on these projects, particularly in short timeframes. To take one example, there's been talked recently about a a new green fund to um, improve home insulation, for example, and they want that to start very quickly. It's one thing saying that, but is it going to be feasible to find, recruit and train the right number of skilled tradespeople to actually get into homes and start doing that work within the timeframe of just a few months? So I think all those things together mean that we tend to have underspending rather than the opposite. Well, let, let me take this opportunity to turn again to Tim Besley, who is uh, on uh, the National Infrastructure Commission. Uh, Tim, perhaps you could start by describing the role um, of, of that commission in the context of the sorts of things that Ben's been talking about in terms of uh, making sure that we plan and manage uh, the capital and infrastructure budgets appropriately? Um, so actually, the, the, the National Infrastructure Commission was a response, I would say, to two of the big issues that, that, that Ben has been talking about. Um, uh, principally, uh, the need to, uh, to have a strategic view about what the infrastructure priorities are. And uh, it's not directly involved in delivery, but, but, but in order to be able to begin to have a long-term delivery, you need to know where you're going to go and what are the priorities you're, you're trying to meet. But also the fact that we have uh, now in the UK uh, a significantly privatised uh, provision of infrastructure. So we have private water companies, National Grid, um, uh, that runs the electricity network is a private company. Electricity generation is private. Um, telecommunications, as you mentioned yourself earlier, Paul. So, so it's important to have some way of coordinating uh, the whole infrastructure um, uh, area without uh, regard to whether it's public or private. 
So, so our, our role is about a, a sort of integrated strategy for all elements of infrastructure, um, trying to bring together um, thinking uh, where relevant that, that cuts across some of the traditional boundaries between sectors, uh, but also to bring the best expertise uh, within sector so that we can understand the challenges faced in, in different areas and to look out over a, a longer time horizon. The idea is that once you have a clear sense of the strategy, um, then you can start to put the funding to best use. And you also, given the importance of private investment, and we shouldn't underestimate how much uh, infrastructure spending is in private hands now, the private sector needs clarity about what government policy is going to be. Uh, take the uh, electricity generation area as an example. Um, if, we, if we're going to have uh, uh, private investors, particularly investing in renewables to supply to the grid, uh, they really need to know what government policy is going to be over a longer time horizon if they're going to make those commitments of private capital. So, so it's about um, having a place in government, or at least we're an independent body, we're, we're at one removed from government, but essentially advising government uh, that can uh, take that longer view uh, and, and not be a prisoner to short-term political considerations. And so when it comes to, I think this is very uh, it's very important and very striking, this role of what is now in the private sector, as you say, you know, key infrastructure like the electricity network and the and the water network are in the private are in private hands. But your role or the is is to advise government essentially about how it should work with and regulate those aspects of the private sector which are providing these um, fundamental services, these fundamental bits of infrastructure, which are so vital to making the economy run. Absolutely. And, and, and a, a good example is to keep an eye on the basis for regulation. So um, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the regulated utilities are going to be able to put um, more on people's bills um, to say fund the uh, um, the, the costs of um, uh, of reducing say carbon emissions, um, but we need the regulators also to be taking a, a view on the wider social benefits of different forms of infrastructure. So that means having a, a joined up and integrated view, and and the, um, the National Infrastructure Commission is trying to trying to provide that and working with. Uh, or all government departments where they have a stake in this, but also with the regulators and uh, the Committee on Climate Change, all, all the pieces of government that are, that are setting these priorities. So we've been talking about um, investment infrastructure in a slightly undifferentiated fashion up till now, and there is a general sense that if it's infrastructure, then it's a good thing. Uh, but what, what do we know about the long-run economic value of different infrastructure inv- investments and and where we're likely to get the biggest bang for our buck and, indeed, where we might not be getting as much bang for our buck as we'd like? What, what we're very good at, I would say, through long-established practice is kind of immediate small-scale cost-benefit analysis of very specific infrastructure investments. So we might know if we're going to uh, um, put a new junction on a particular road, uh, we can evaluate rather well given the cost of that. We probably have pretty good cost estimates uh, for for a project like that and a pretty good sense of, say, the uh, reduction in congestion or and therefore the time savings of doing something like that. So I would say uh, at that end of the spectrum, we have pretty good tools. 
I think where the knowledge base is much uh, thinner and therefore much more contested are to look at the big long-term integrated economic benefits from infrastructure investment. Uh, and I mean, even after the fact, it's, it becomes highly contested. So we're about to open Crossrail in London, uh, about to, I say, it's still not absolutely certain when it will happen, but we're at least edging towards uh, being able to open Crossrail. Um, and I'm sure there were plenty of uh, analyses done of the costs and benefits of Crossrail. But you know, there, there are many things about business relocation, um, where uh, housing will be created, um, that, that are really very hard to model and, and to get a convincing um, uh, analysis of. Uh, and on that, I, I do think that it, it, it's, a, it's a much harder thing to do kind of tightly defined quantitative analysis. Uh, and some of the most striking successes that we've seen such as the creation of Canary Wharf as an alternative, or not an alternative to, but an extension of the City of London, I think would have defied cost-benefit analysis as a way of thinking about um, whether that project was worthwhile. I think many people would say it's a remarkable achievement to have taken effectively a wasteland in East London and uh, created a, a 21st century financial and business hub. Um, but we will never know for sure whether the cost benefit adds up, but, but the sense would be that it did, and it did in a way that would be hard, would have been very hard to quantify ex ante. So if we look at contemporary debates about how to rejuvenate some of the more depressed areas of the UK, I think we do face similarly difficult uh, uh, calculative effort, uh, barriers to getting accurate quanti quantified analyses of what could be the impact. And the other thing to bear in mind is that infrastructure is just one component. It may be in some instances an important component. Uh, it's not always an important component, but it still serves a role. So, so one needs to look at that in the wider context of the many different policies that you need to make a real difference to how an economy works. And I guess the classic current example of uh, the difficulty of thinking through this is is HS2, uh, a potentially £100 billion plus project with all sorts of benefits claimed for it, but ones that, uh, in truth, are almost um, unquantifiable. And when one's talking about projects of that kind and scale, I think you're saying that, to some extent, you're taking a bit of a punt on what the long-run effect will be because ex-ante is so difficult to know the extent to which it may or may not transform economic performance. Yeah, and, I, and I, I always think the analogy to entrepreneurship, so this is about political entrepreneurship, but obviously with, with other people's money, namely uh, it's the taxpayer's money that's being put at risk. But in a sense, when you undertake a project of that magnitude and uh, you really are acting much as a, an entrepreneur would act in, in having uh, or planning an innovation or a new line of business. And uh, it, in the end, it's going to be a lot more about gut instinct than it is about carefully calculated benefits. Uh, and, you know, on, on the scale that many op entrepreneurs operate, um, there is a market mechanism which says if it's not successful, it, it just goes bankrupt and we never see anything else from it. It's a lot more complicated, as, you, as you're aware, when it comes to infrastructure, because you do have to commit, and in the case of HS2, very, very significant public sums 
in the hope that ultimately there will be really very transformative changes in the parts of the country that will be served by it. But nobody, just nobody, could stand up and credibly claim they have an analysis to prove that. So, so we are in a, for, for a project on that scale, we are in a, in a place where uh, it, it's going to be a, a kind of political debate between competing visions that's going to decide it, not uh, a carefully reasoned scientific economic debate. It's a very striking observation from uh, from one of the country's leading economists that in the end, when it comes to spending these odd hundred billion here or there, it's as much to do with gut instinct uh, as anything else. But I think that's uh, I think it's absolutely right that in the end, uh, one is taking a, a, a judgment on the available information, but one that it's uh, reasonable people can absolutely reasonably differ over. Um, uh, ben, uh, let, let, let's, spend a, let's spend a minute now um, thinking about where uh, investment spending goes. There's been a lot of discussion around uh, what the government at the moment calls levelling up and a lot of uh, concern about the fact that apparently quite a lot of capital investment happens in London and the southeast, arguably at the expense uh, of other parts of the uh, country, what what do we know about the regional pattern of government investment? We know that there are regional imbalances in how much government invests in different parts of the country. So to take the prominent and the topical example of transport, uh, based on the most recent numbers we have, transport spending per head in London is about 2.5 times higher than it is in the rest of the country. It's about £650 per head in London versus about £260 everywhere else. To take another example, something that we think might be important for boosting productivity and future economic performance, if we look at R&D spending by government and the higher education sector, spending in London, the southeast and the east of England, uh, relatively prosperous parts of the country on average, is about 80% higher per person than it is in the rest of the country. And if we look at total R&D, so including the private sector as well, it's about 90% higher. So there are differences, and clearly there are people arguing that should be more uh, evenly spread across the country and the government seems to be tapping into that um so it's not a baseless argument i would say but why do we end up with that i mean and you you present those bare statistics and it just sounds rather unfair but uh, why do we end up in, in in a world in which so much more gets spent in those areas that already have so much more it relates in part to what tim was just talking about so the, these quantitative analyses, these cost-benefit analyses of different projects where you try and, as best you can, weigh up the benefits you expect to get from that spending versus how much it's going to cost you, and you pick the ones that seem to have the best benefit-cost ratios, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. And if you were to do a narrow economic analysis of a new transport project, for example, it the economic returns are likely to be greatest in those parts of the country that have lots of highly productive jobs, dense populations, relatively high performing local economies, those areas, the return on your investment, the financial return is likely to be uh, greater. And so there is a, some people would argue there's a risk that past economic performance governs future investment and you can kind of get a self-reinforcing loop. Now it's understandable that the treasury want to get the greatest bang for their book and invest where the return is greatest. But as Tim was saying, ultimately, there is an element of politics in this, and we could choose to place greater weight on other factors apart from the financial return. It is worth noting that the benefit-cost ratio isn't the be-all and end-all. The DLR, 
extension in London, the Woolwich extension in London uh, went ahead. The Leeds Supertram did not, despite the fact that the latter had a higher benefit cost ratio on paper. There are clearly political elements to this as well. But I think that the the rules that the Treasury use to govern which investment projects get funding, the so-called Green Book, uh, the Chancellor announced is going to review those rules. And we may see an update later this year, perhaps next. Uh, but it is something that government's thinking about and uh, is clearly part of an important debate at the moment. Uh, and Tim, that comes very much down to what you were saying, doesn't it? The 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 the, the, the basic benefit cost ratio calculations will tend to point you towards investing in those areas where uh, there are lots of people earning earning quite a lot. It's already quite congested, and so where something is successful um, already, there's a case for more spending, but. I think I take from what you were saying almost that when it comes to big projects aimed at improving growth in other regions, you are having to take more of a punt on that kind of investment. Well, I think we need a, a, a more open and uh, forward-looking discussion on that. And, and you know, if our ambition had been to uh, level up the regions of the UK and we think infrastructure is an important part of that, then arguably we have not been doing that. Uh, so there needs to be some kind of rethink if we think that's where we're headed. But I, I, I just want to caution on one thing, that, that couching it only in terms of economic growth is, is also uh, uh, slightly problematic because at the end of the day, we should care about well-being, not just growth. And growth maybe contributes in important ways to well-being. But let me give you a very concrete, granular example. If you go to many rural uh, areas, uh, particularly in the north of England, one of the big complaints is that bus services end at 8 o'clock in the evening or 10 o'clock in the evening. So people who want to go out in the evening can't get home afterwards. Now, uh, that may seem like an incredibly trivial issue. But if you're designing a system of public transport that serves people in areas where they're not currently served, that might be a big uh, investment. But it may not raise their wages. So... You know, at the end of the day, that's a good example of something where there's no reason to think that providing better bus services that connect rural people to allow them to go out and eat in the evening raises anybody's wages. But it may have an impact on, on well-being. Um, so, so we do need wider criteria. And I know that's a very detailed and specific example. On the wider uh, issue of how we might level up, um, I think what we what we need there is something that joins up, though, the housing, the infrastructure, the skills. Um, and, and, and that's where it, it's about going to be more than just a debate about do we, do we have better transportation. And I think that's, that's something we all have to realise before we begin the conversation. It's those complementarities between other factors and infrastructure that will drive things in the end. And if you get some of those wrong, you don't put the housing in the right place or you don't provide the school so that the housing, so people want to go and live in that housing. Um, if those things are not all joined up as policies, then that's probably much more important to the long run, both growth and well-being of, of, of an area. And we need a way of thinking about policy as a, as a strategy. Um, and just to give you an example, I was asked at one point in my life to do a review of the EBRD's lending strategy. The EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, lends to projects with a view to aiding the transition uh, away from communism towards capitalism in Eastern Europe. That's why it was set up. 
And there was a question, well, how could you ever do that by lending money to specific projects? And the answer is, of course you couldn't. Any specific project is not going to lead to some dramatic transformation from communism to capitalism. You need to think about critical mass. So how could a program of reform to which projects can contribute make that transition? And I think we need to have that same mode of thinking when we're thinking about the challenges of, of levelling up. It's the integration of maybe a number of infrastructure projects, some projects on skills, and they say housing, and how they will all work together. And in the end, that may look as if the infrastructure has incredibly high returns because we've transformed an area and it looks like we've done it. But that's really the wrong way to think about it. At the end of the day, it's the package that is the transformational thing of which the infrastructure is just one input into a wider, uh, a wider uh, effort. And I don't think things like the Green Book uh, or any um, any uh, uh, new version of the Green Book is really going to get us to a point where we can have those kind of uh, um, broad strategies that that can have potentially, even they won't necessarily, but have potentially transformative economic uh, consequences. So that that points towards integrated regional or place based plans for development, um, and they. Uh, in the end, a, a an informed but political decision about which of those get the funding. Yeah, well, I I, I would certainly come down in uh, in having a much bigger role for um, regionally sourced and supported uh, strategies. For you know, we've 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 created some of these regional uh, mayoralties. Whether we've given them quite the right political geography, we could we could debate. But the, I, to, for me, it's a move in the in the right kind of direction, because they are able to potentially have that integrated approach, and they can add I, I, something I haven't mentioned is industrial strategy. They can add in their ambitions for industrial strategy and skills and all the rest, along with infrastructure. And I think we'd have a much better chance at building more effective regional economies uh, if we if we if we we're willing to to stand behind accountable but locally accountable um, uh, politicians, but with the right political geography, so that so that it makes sense uh, to to develop the region that that these that these uh, politicians preside over, uh, rather than getting mired in the very baroque structure of local government that we have. I don't think local government in our current setting is really is really the right level at which to be thinking in terms of uh, infrastructure development. So yes, I, I think we need to decide, and I hope we will decide, that we, we need to put more faith in our, our regional political leaders and give them the opportunities they need to develop much more integrated strategies. Well, that's certainly a huge challenge for central and local government to get that right. Um, but uh, rather than delving further into that, I want to cover one more topic in this um, episode, which is uh, the particular circumstances we're in at the moment, and the suggestions by very many commentators that an important part of the recovery package in the short run uh, from the deep recession that we're currently in should be additional spending, capital spending, infrastructure spending, as a way, um, incidentally, as it were, of helping the economy in the long run. But, uh, but, but, but really, because this is a very good time to be making that spending, because it's very cheap to borrow, uh, because there's a lot of spare 
capacity in the economy, and if you um, if you spend that on on building things, it, it helps boost the economy uh, through the demand side as well. How how, how plausible or how important an aspect of a, a recovery package do you see that as? I'll, I'll go to you, Tim, first, and then and then and ask essentially the same question to Ben. I, I mean, I think it, it's important, but not always in the way it's described. Um, meaning that. Um, it's not about shovel ready. I mean, there are some things we can do quite quickly, for sure. Uh, and of course, we should do all those things. So some of the maintenance issues, for example, are things where relatively quickly we can get people out. Modulo, Ben's very important point about the supply chain and how far we would stress our supply chain by trying to boost this very quickly. But I think there are there are areas uh, and some of the the stuff that's been announced on school maintenance and building could, could be similarly things that could be could be done relatively quickly, um, but so 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 I'm completely behind behind that. And there are other things that can be accelerated. For example, more auctions for offshore wind. We could accelerate that program. But but more more, more importantly, um, we, we need to use this as an opportunity for getting clarity on long term goals and, and therefore stimulating private investment. Uh, and that can be directly private investment in infrastructure-related things, but also private infra- private investment in things that will create jobs in the more traditional sectors of the economy. And that complementarity between private investment and public investment is where where this is important. And often what the private sector needs is some kind of clarity about where government is heading and why uh, as a basis for uh creating that co- that co investment and i think at this time um that's what we what we really need and i'll mention one more thing in relation to this i i do think it's the it's time to have a national investment bank to help uh spearhead this too um because there's a lot of private capital out there that would want to find its way into infrastructure projects but even though interest rates are very low um, risk premia can be very high for private investors, partly because uh, there's political risk around what, what investments the government is going to commit down the line. And I think a national investment bank at this point would help to provide uh, a kind of degree of early stage uh, investment that would ultimately stimulate quite a bit of private investment. Uh, and uh, that should be a priority. We've lost, or we're about to lose access to the European Investment Bank, uh, which was... Uh, uh, has been supportive, an EU institution has been supportive of, of investment. And I think you can create real additionality because of the co-investment between the private sector and the public sector. Uh, and uh, and while this may not start in two months, I think the confidence effect that you can generate behind very clearly credible plans shouldn't be underestimated at a time when the, one of the big risks we have for the UK is that confidence is draining away and that will really damage the kind of job creation process uh, that we've relied on uh, in the last few years to keep very, as we know, very, very high and stable levels of employment. Uh, Tim, what is, a, what is a national investment bank? What, 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 what does it do? How is it financed? What, why, why do you think we need one? But, but most of all, what is a national investment bank? So for me, a national investment bank is an independent institution, I mean, accountable to government, either to parliament or the treasury, that is capitalised by treasury. So the the wonders of callable capital means that 
Treasury, if it were to commit relatively modest sums of the order, say four four billion, could ultimately a four billion a year over five years could ultimately support a lending portfolio of something in the region of fifty eighty billion. Um, and it's because banks can utilize the uh, the, the leverage ratio, um, and uh, by being independent. Uh, but with a clearly defined mission to support um, regeneration and uh, and a more public-oriented goals, uh, as did the Green Investment Bank, for example, when it existed, um, it would it would therefore act like a bank to whoever wanted to apply for funding, and I would allow personally regional governments to directly access funding. Um, the, for example, new interconnector project uh, that we, we have going across the North Sea to Norway could be funded through something like a national investment bank. It's, a, it's an essentially private project, but one where public funding of the kind that could come through a national investment bank could support it. So I see it as a, as a, as a very important tool in the armory of uh, being able to support long-term investment. There are debatable margins about where where would it end? Would it would it allow, for example, uh, investment in skills related projects? You could have that if there was a credible business case. I would actually open it up to quite a broad range of things. But in the first instance, it could be essentially a national in infrastructure investment bank. But I prefer to keep it slightly more open. And countries like Germany that have KFW have made extensive use of this kind of institution particularly in recent times because of the difficult uh, times we've been in. And they actually used it as the vehicle for getting loans out to the, to the private sector during the crisis. But I wouldn't necessarily say that should be its primary aim. It should be to support long-term development goals of the UK government. Finally, um, Ben, to you, uh, the question of the role of uh, government investment spending in supporting the economy in the short run. What, what, what do we know about how successful how successfully governments have been able to do that in the past and the value that it might have in the current crisis? Well, we know that in the aftermath of the financial crisis, part of the fiscal stimulus package then was bringing forward investment spending from future years and trying to get money out the door faster. And you, you might run into problems of timing, like Tim was talking about and I was talking about earlier, but I think that it's certainly unlikely to do any harm. The government prior to the crisis was already indicating it was willing to borrow at very low interest rates to invest higher amounts than we have in the recent past. There's no reason why that wouldn't now continue. If they can bring some of that spending forward, it's certainly not unlikely to harm the recovery and it might have some long-term benefits. We know the construction sector has been hit quite hard by the pandemic, lots of furloughed workers in that area. So I think that it certainly is unlikely to be damaging. One thing I would say to end on, though, is that there's a sense to which People are taking the crisis and the pandemic and whatever projects that they, their pet projects they believed in a year ago, they're now insisting that this pandemic has proved that they were right all along and it's definitely the right thing to do in the recovery. And in some cases, they may well be right, but I think that anything that's possible now was almost certainly possible a year ago. And if we do, as seems possible, have a permanent hit to our economic growth potential, if anything, the government's going to have less resources to work with than it might have done. So I think we should bear that in mind in the months and indeed years ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, to Tim and to Ben for that uh, fascinating uh, canter through an enormous amount of issues in the uh, investment and infrastructure 
field. I think we've uh, we, we, we've we've learned an enormous amount about how public and private investment infrastructure need to work together. Why spending by the public sector in the UK now looks high by recent standards, but low by more distant uh, standards. You've had uh, some top economists here agreeing in the end that there is a limit to the role of economic analysis in determining where infrastructure investment should uh, should take place. Um, the importance of, uh, of that investment in the levelling up uh, agenda and also in thinking about how we recover from the current uh, current pandemic, uh, not to mention a proposal for a national infrastructure uh, bank. There's plenty uh, to chew on there and possibly enough to chew on on another episode. Uh, but if you did enjoy this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of all of our latest work at the IFS by visiting www.ifs.org.uk, where you'll, where you'll find a huge amount of uh, work related to the current crisis as well as fiscal policy in general. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.